She's she helps with our youth ministry. She's actually going to be teaching the ladies in a few weeks. So if you want to continue to pray for her, you can pray for that. Um, she's getting excited. We prepped her this week a little bit, so yeah, be in prayer for her with that as well. Um, one announcement that was missed earlier this morning was um, the seniors' lunch that's happening this Saturday. So that's from 12 to 3. Um, all the seniors are invited. Seniors from Oxford Baptist Church and Faithway Baptist are also going to be attending. And then the youth from all three churches will be serving you and playing board games. So uh, I invite you all to come. Last week, um, Jeff Morgan mentioned that it was the youth's idea that, that uh, seniors was 50 and over. And that was not our idea. <laughs> I got to make sure... Maybe Jeff just wants to come. You can come. Um, but yes, uh, I guess 15 over is the age that's been set for that, but that wasn't us. You're welcome to attend, though. This morning, we're going to be examining the book of Job. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Job chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be starting right at the beginning. And we're actually going to be going through the entire book this morning. As an overview... Um, and, and looking at the main point of the book of Job. One of the things that we've taught our students um, when we looked at how to read the Bible is that it's important to read the Bible verse by verse and go through it and dissect it like we do on Sunday, normally, Sunday mornings normally with George as he's going through the book of John. Um, and it's also important to go through large chunks of Scripture and see the major themes and how God is at work um, over and above everything. So... Uh, I hope I can demonstrate that a little bit this morning as we look at the book of Job. Let's pray and then we will begin. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together and gather in your name to lift up your, to lift you up with songs of praise and with our offerings and with our prayers. Lord, I pray that as we open your word this morning, that we would trust it to be completely authoritative in our lives, that we would um, submit to everything that it has to say, and that we would apply it, and you would change us from the inside out. Lord, I pray that as I speak this morning, that your spirit would um, allow us to just understand what your word is saying, and that you would apply what we need to hear to our hearts. pray these things in your name. Amen. If you haven't noticed, sin is running rampant in our world. Looking at the news from the past week, here are just some of the headlines that you would see. February 17th, 2018. 13 killed in helicopter crash after Mexican quake. February 17th, 2018. Trio of suicide bombers killed 20 in crowded market in Nigeria. February 16th, 2018. Nine dead in fire at waste facility in southern China. February 16th, 2018. Earthquake shakes south and central Mexico with a magnitude of 7.5. February 14th, 2018. At least 17 dead in Florida high school after shooting. February 11th, 2018, British tourists killed in Grand Canyon helicopter crash, three dead, four injured. If those news articles aren't enough to convince you that sin is running rampant, consider some of these statistics. 
In 2015 alone, Canada, just Canada, performed 100,104 abortions. The year before that, they performed 90 more. In the United States, since the start of 2018, so since January 1st, 1,893 people have been killed in gun-related accidents. Since January 1st. 443 of those deaths involve someone under 18. What I'm not trying to say here is that we need to get better, get rid of guns or get better prisons or put bans on things so that our world is safer. What I'm saying is that our world is sinful and sin is running rampant. So that raises the question for us. Is God really in control? Is God really just? Does God repay good for good and evil for evil? Is that how He works? And so that's what we're going to look at this morning as we examine the book of Job, the justice of God. To give you a little bit of historical background for the book of Job, um, our Bibles, the whole of it, including the Old Testament, they're ordered in terms of type of literature, not necessarily in chronological order. So the book of Job is a poetic and wisdom literature. That's why you find it in the same area as the Psalms and the Proverbs. And so as we read this entire book, um, especially verses three or chapters 3 to 37, um, you need to remember that this is poetic literature. And this is whenever you read the Bible, you need to know what type of literature it is because you don't read a poem the same way you read a news article or the same way you need, read a nonfiction story or the same way you read... Uh, anything like that, right? You need to know what the type of literature is. So this is poetic, um, and because it's poetic, there's lots of symbolism, lots of themes, and you need to remember that. Historically, we really don't know that much about Job. We do know um, that it is a very book, unique book in the Bible, specifically because it takes place in the land of Uz, which is not inside of Israel. The main character, Job, he's not an Israelite. And then historical context in terms of when it was written, we have no idea. So it seems that the point of the author is that, this is the point of the author, is not to distract us. They don't want us to get bogged down in the historical context and all that stuff that's going on. They want us to um, focus on the story. So let's focus on the story and what happens with Job. So in Job, the first two chapters, we have the prologue. And here, um, if you're reading through in verse 1, you see that in the, he's from the land of Uz is, is Job. And we see right away that he is a man that is blameless and upright and who feared God and turned away from evil. That's who Job is. So Job is a man who's blameless, upright, who feared God and turned away from evil. And the author continues to describe some of the things that he has. So he has seven, do- or seven sons and three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 5,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, many servants. And in fact, we're told that he was the greatest of all the people in the East. He had so much stuff. And on top of that, Job made daily sacrifices to God on behalf of his family. Overall, we see Job that, we see that Job was a man of God and that he was a very blessed man. Then, In verses 6 to 12 of chapter 1, 
the scene switch, and we're now in the presence of the Lord. And this idea of this this council, that idea that we see, this is just an Old Testament um, theme that you see a lot of times happening, where there's kind of this debate. And so Satan comes up and challenges God and asserts that, you know what, Job is only faithful because you've blessed him with so many things. And if you were to go and you were to take away some of these things that you've blessed him with, then he will turn away from you. And so God tells him, Behold, all that he has is in your hands. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. And so, as we continue through chapter 1, you see that Job is attacked by Satan. And it happens in two parts. So, the first part happens in verses 13 to 22 of chapter 1. And um, there's four instances. So, first, um, Job has all his livestock destroyed. And then his servants with those. His children start to die. And eventually he's left with absolutely nothing. It's just him and his wife that are left over. And Job's response to this in verses 20 and 22 is this. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this, Job did not sin or charge God wrong. So we see that Satan kind of appears again before God. And he says, you know what? If I attack his health, this time he will curse you. And so God tells him that he can do that, but he can't take his life. And so we're told that um, Satan comes and he... He inflicts Job with sores from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. He's covered in sores. And after this, Job's wife comes to him and says, in chapter 2, verse 9, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job responds a verse later, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And we sh- Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? As a result, we're told that during all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So to finish our prologue, we have these three friends that come in. Ephilzah, Bildad, and Zorphar. It's interesting to note again that these three guys, none of them are Israelites. So we still haven't had a single Israelite in this book. We're not in Israel. Um, So it's really interesting to note that. Ultimately, these guys, they represent the best of ancient Near Eastern thinking about who God is and about understanding the idea of suffering and how God's justice works. And they came to comfort Job and they sat with him for seven days and seven nights and during that time they didn't speak and when they start speaking, that's when we continue to work through the book of Job. So a quick recap. Job had everything. He had possessions. He had family. He had all the animals he needed. And then he lost everything. His possessions, his family, except his wife and his health. Job was then rebuked by his wife and then these three friends have now come to visit him. Imagine yourself in this position. So first, you lose your job. Then your house is destroyed and everything you own inside of it is lost. Then your children are killed. Would this be fair? Would God be just in doing this? Well, that's what we're going to look at inside the book of Job this morning. 
this book ultimately is not going to answer why God allows suffering to exist. It's, it's not what it's going to do. What it does answer, though, is, is God just? And does God run the world according to justice? From chapters 3 to 32nd, 37, sorry, we have this, uh, these three discussions that go on, and then there's some more, but between Job and his friends. So these discussions, they happen in three cycles. So first Job will speak, and then Ilpaz will respond to him. Then Job replies back, and then Bildad will respond, and then Job replies again, and then Zophar will respond, and then finally Job will say something. And so that dialogue back and forth happens three times. And Job's argument, if you could summarize all the arguments that he makes in all of those chapters, would be this. I am innocent. Therefore, my suffering is not divine justice. In other words, God isn't doing, I'm not suffering because I did something bad, because I didn't do something bad. And if we remember from chapter 1, we saw that, that Job was blameless and upright. So that's true. He is innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. And it's true that this suffering is not a result of divine justice. So this leads Job then to two possible conclusions inside of these chapters. First, God doesn't run the world according to justice. Or at least his idea of what justice is like. Good for good, evil for evil. Or secondly, God himself is just unjust. The friends' arguments are similar in how they operate. They argue that since God is just, therefore God runs the world according to justice. And since Job is having all these terrible things happen to him, he must have sinned and done something wrong. He's done something evil, and so he's getting evil in return. From both Job and his friends' arguments, we can see that they're making about a huge assumption about what God's justice is like. They believe that wise and good actions and people receive success and reward. Good for good. And they also believe that evil and sinful people receive disaster and punishment. Many people today believe that. Maybe you believe that. That good should be repaid with good and evil is always repaid with evil and that's just the way that God operates the entire universe. Think of how our society sees that with the idea of karma. You do something bad, you deserve something bad to happen to you. You deserve something good, well something good has got to happen to you because it has to. It's karma. But is this the way that God organizes the universe? And as we as we continue, we're going to see that that's not true. So in chapters 3 to 14, we have the first cycle of debates. In chapters 15 to 21, we have the second cycle of debates. In chapters 22 to 28, we have the third cycle of debates. And here Job continues to assert this whole time that he has not sinned. The friends, though, they don't believe him and they say he has to have sinned. And so Job and the friends are really wrestling here with this notion of justice and what it actually looks like. The suffering of Job um, concludes that God is holy, that he is strong, that he's wise, but he's not sure if he's just. The problem is that he doesn't want to believe that God isn't, un, he isn't just. Because if he believes that he's, he's not just, then everything falls apart. So Job wants to believe he's just, but he doesn't know how to reconcile everything here. 
His family and his friends, his, his friends firmly believe that God is just, though, and therefore the only explanation is that Job must have sinned. When you get to chapters 29 to 31, we see that Job presents his last statement of innocence. This is the last time he speaks. And Job doesn't change his tune. He firmly believes he's done nothing wrong. And that's right. He's, he's true. That's correct. And in chapter 31, verse 35, he cries out, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Ultimately, he thinks that his friends are wrong and that he hasn't sinned. And therefore, because he can't explain what's happening, he doesn't know why bad things are happening to him, God has to answer him. He deserves it. Because God's not following the way that justice is supposed to be working. That's how Job is feeling at this time. During the offertory, we had I played that video um, called Where Were You by a band named Ghost Ship. And it's a really weird band name. I don't know why they picked that. Um, but they have some really good songs. And that one really just works through the book of Job. And it explains it. And... In their song, they really describe Job's argument as this. So you heard this earlier, and I just want to read it for you. And I said, God, I do not understand this world. Everything is dying and broken. Why do I see nothing but suffering? God, I'm asking, could this be your plan? Sin has taken hold of this whole land. Will you not say anything to me? And maybe you're here this morning and you're in the same place as Job. Bad things keep happening to you. You're serving the Lord. You're upright with Him. You're repenting your sins. And bad things just keep happening. It's not getting any better. And so, God is ultimately going to answer that. But we'll get there. As you continue through the book, from chapters 32 to 37... We have a new character appear. His name is Elihu. And again, he's not an Israelite. Elihu assumes, like the friends and Job, that God is just and implies that God always operates the world according to justice. But he adds something to it. He adds a further conclusion about why God might introduce suffering. He thinks, well, maybe... Your suffering is a warning to avoid a future sin, or maybe it's, it's to help build character. Elihu doesn't know why Job is suffering. We still don't know why Job is suffering. And he can't claim to have all the answers, and he doesn't. There is one thing that Elihu does know, though. Job is wrong to accuse God of being unjust. If you're here this morning and... You don't understand why these bad things are happening to you. You can't accuse God of being unjust. He is perfectly just. It's part of His very nature. Think about what God accomplished on the cross through His Son Jesus. To be a just God, He had to, all the sin was paid for through Jesus on the cross. It had to be. The wrath of God had to be satisfied. If God didn't punish sin, then how could He be just? Think, for example, about David and his sin with Bathsheba. How he went and he stole his wife, he committed adultery with her, and to cover it up, he murdered her husband. And then, 
we're told that David repents and, and God forgives him. How can you say that God is just in doing that? How can he be just if that punishment wasn't laid down on Jesus on the cross? That's the only way God can be just. What Christ did on the cross was pay the punishment for sins so that we can believe in him. And in doing so, he is able to say that we're sinless and stay completely just. God has to be just. That's who he is. And he's maintained this this justness, being a justice God, because the sin has because sin has been poured out on Jesus, not because, and taken away from us. Job doesn't respond to Elihu then as this discussion closes. And if you're reading through this, it's like the wisdom of the ancient Near East has been spent upon this mystery of God's justice, and they've gotten absolutely nowhere. But then. God answers. And that's found in Job chapter 38 to 41. God responds to Job. And we're told in in chapter 38 verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said. So God himself comes and speaks to Job. And what he's not going to do here is he's not going to give an exact explanation of what Job, you're suffering because of this. This is why you're suffering. Instead, he responds in two parts. First, by looking at the universe, and then secondly, um, by looking at these two beasts. So, first, let's look at the first response, which is how he looks at the universe. And together, this morning, uh, we're actually going to read chapters 38 and 39. So, let's start reading chapters 38 and 39. Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the world when and said, Who is this that darkness counsels my words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will be known to me. So as God begins here, with chapters, verses 2 and 3, um, if you were to read the message translation, this is kind of like to sum it up and, and to make it really clear. Why do you confuse the issue? Why do you talk without knowing what you're talking about? Pull yourself together, Job. Up on your feet. Stand tall. I have some questions for you and I want some straight answers. This is what God is calling Job to do in light of everything that Job has been saying about God and his questions and his calling out. So let's read that from uh, verse 4 on. And God said to them, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined the measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were the ba- on what were the basins sunk? And who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the songs of God shouted for joy. Or who shut the sea with, with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its shadowing band and prescribed limits to it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther. And there shall you proud your waves, and there your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and cast the dawn to know its place, that it might might take hold of the of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it? Is it challenged like the like the clay like the clay under the seal, and the features stand out like a garment? 
From the wicked their lights is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of the deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanses of the earth? Declare, if you know this. Where is the way to the dwelling of the light? And where is the place of darkness? That you have taken it to its territory, and that you can discern its path from its home to its home? You know you were, you were born then, and the num- you know you were born then, and, your num- and the number of your days is great. Have you, entered the, have you entered the storehouses of snow, or have you seen the storehouses of hail, which have received for the time of, which are reserved for the time of trouble and the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east sea is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for torrents of rain, a way for the thunderbolt, or bringing rain on a land where, the, where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man? to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the ground sprout with grass. Has the rain rain a father, or who has begotten the, the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And whom have given birth to the frost, to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Peladins, or loose the cords of Orion? Or can you lead forth the Mazareth, to, the cease, to, its, to their season. Those are all constellations it's talking about there. Or can you guide to the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that, that the flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightning that, that they may go and say to you, Here we are. Who has wisdom in the inner, inward parts or, the, or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds of wisdom, or who can tilt the water skins of he- who can tilt the water skins of heaven, when the dust runs into the masses and clods and clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for a lion, or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? Can you crowd in the dens and lie in wait with their ticket, who provides the raven and prey, when the young ones cry to God for help and wander and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of does? Can you number the mouths that they fulfill? And do you know when the time when they give birth, when the crowds bring forth and their offspring and deliver their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Can you let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosened the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom... I have given the arid plain of his home and the salt land of his dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city and, and hears not the shouts of the driver. He rages the mountains his pasture and searches for every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend a night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrows with ropes? Or will he hollow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great? And will you leave to him your labor. Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to the threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich are, are, wave proudly, and they are pinions and, plum, and plumage of love. For she, sees the, for she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground. 
forgetting that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may trample them. She deals crudely with her young as they were not as if they were not hers, though her labor be in vain. Yet she has no fear because God has not made made her because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and its rider. Do you give the horse might? Do you clothe the neck of the mane? Do you do can uh, do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. His paws in the in the valley, and exalts the strength as he goes to meet to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and does not dismay. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver and flashing spear and the javelin. The fierceness and with fierceness and rage he swallows the ground and cannot stand at the sore, the sound of the trumpet when the trumpet sounds and says aha. He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and shouting. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spread its wings toward the south? Is it by your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? Or the rock he dwells and makes his home? Or the rocky cage stronghold? From where he spies out the prey, his eyes behold him from afar. His young ones suck up blood, and where the slain, there he is. There is he. Wow. That's a response. Job asked for a response and he got one. And if you missed what that says, basically, God, when Job goes and questions God and God comes back and says, did you create the universe? Do you continue to sustain the entire universe to the point of, do you know how big, how the earth was formed? Do you know exactly how big it is? Can you go and, and use the constellations and move them and know why they are exactly where they are? Do you have control over the wind and the waves and the snow and the hail and the lightning? Can you control all those things? Do you know all the animals? These animals that are roaming free in the middle of nowhere. Do you know when they give birth? Do you know what they're going to eat? Do you keep them safe? Do you provide a mane on the back of a horse? Do you sustain the universe? Is what he's asking. And you know what? Job doesn't have an answer for that. Because he can't explain the math or the science behind everything that's happening. He can't, he can't comprehend all of these infinite details that were going on. And so today, if God were to ask you your question, when you think about the struggles that you're going through in your life, if you're going through something hard right now, and you think, and you've been questioning and praying to God, and you don't know what to do, and you've been questioning Him. When you read this, and, and God says, do you create and sustain the universe, what answer will you give? See, Job and his friends assume how God's justice worked. But there was a deeper assumption behind that. They thought that, you know what, they had a wide enough perspective to make a claim that they knew how God's justice worked. But the problem is they don't. Their perspective, they can't see enough. There's such a small view, just like we do. We can't see everything that's going on. We can only see such a small and limited perspective. And God shows us that the universe is vast, is a vast and complex place, far beyond our understanding, and He is in control of everything. Job doesn't have a universal vantage point, and we don't have a universal vantage point. Job answers him back, 
in chapter 40, verse 2. Or sorry, sorry, in verse 3. And he says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small amount, and what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Job decided it was time to stop talking. That was a good idea. John MacArthur puts it like this. Job's first response to God was, I am guilty as charged. I will say no more. He knows he should have had, he knows he should have found fault. He should not have found fault with the Almighty. He should have not insisted on his own understanding. He should have not thought God to be unjust. So he is reduced to silence at last. But God isn't done. And I'm not going to read another two chapters here. But if you were to continue, um, you, you continue to see God and how he micromanages the world on a day-to-day basis. And, and God challenges him again and says, are you going to do this? Will you micromanage the world like I do? And then he brings him in verse 40, um, from 6 to 34, he talks to him about these two amazing and beastly animals which are named the behemoth and leviathan and no these are not the roller coasters at canada's wonderland so he starts with the behemoth and he talks about how big it is and how grand it is and how it's strong and ultimately it's dangerous it's not a safe creature and god brings this question to him in verse 24 and says Can you take him by your eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Can you control this animal? But before Job can say anything, he goes, well, think about the Leviathan, another huge and enormous and mighty creature. And as you read some of the description of it in in these chapters, in chapter 40 and 41, you see just how big and massive and powerful and ultimately dangerous these creatures are. For humans, it's overwhelming. It's uncontrollable. It's terrorizing. But that's not the case for God. He's in complete control over these beasts. There's nothing He can't tell them to do, and they always listen to Him. God's world is amazing, but it's not always safe. So the question that we asked at the beginning is, is God really in control? Is God really just? Does God repay good for good and evil for evil? And from God's response, it's clear that God, He is in control. He's in control of everything. There's nothing that happens without His knowledge. And we see that, you know what? God deals justly with the universe. He deals justly with sin. But He doesn't always work the way that we think it will. See, our understanding of good for good and evil for evil is so small. We have such limited view and we can't see the grand and big scheme of things and how exactly that works. But God can. So why is there suffering in the world? God doesn't answer that question. Why did Job suffer? God does not answer that question. But what he does say though is that we live in an extremely complex world that is not designed without suffering. 
When Job challenged God's justice, we see that he doesn't that, that he doesn't have sufficient knowledge to make such a claim, and neither do we. If we're questioning God and why He does the things the way He does and why things are happening in our lives the way they are, we need to think about who God is. We need to think about His justice. We need to think about His perspective. The fact that He sees all things and knows all things and just knows so much more than we do. And so we need to respond like Job does in the final chapter, chapter 42. So let's read chapter 42, verses 1 to 6. And this is Job's response to everything that God has said. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. I heard, of, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job responds with humility, and Job responds with repentance. He apologizes for accusing God and, and acknowledges that he's overstepped his bound. He's gone too far. That song we listen to, again, alluding to the lyrics, it summarizes it really well. And it says, at the end, if you notice this, after God spoke, Job says, I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. Although I had no right to ask, my God knelt and answered me. This morning, if you're questioning God, This is the way you need to respond. MacArthur again says, Job's confession and repentance took place finally. He still did not know why he suffered so profoundly, but he was done complaining, questioning, and challenging God's wisdom and justice. He was reduced to such utter humility, crushed beneath the weight of God's greatness, that all he could do was repent for his innocence, for his... his, um, Isolence. Without answers to all of his questions, Job quietly bowed and humbled himself before his Creator and admitted God as sovereign. Most important for the message of the book, Job was still uh, was still distressed and diseased and without children and possessions. God had not changed anything except that He had humbled His servant. It's so easy for us to say when things are going wrong, why God, and demand an answer. We need to remember that we don't see the whole story, but God does. There are times when bad things are going to happen in our lives. And maybe that's right now. And these things are happening and you don't understand why they're happening. But remember that during these times we can't question the wisdom of God and we cannot question the justice of God. Because... He knows more than we do, and He's completely just. He's in a position that we're not in. He sees more than we ever will. He understands more than we can ever imagine. So what we need to do is trust them in His wisdom and justice when we're at this place. Today, trust His Word, which has been proven time and time again. 
God's understanding is way greater than yours and mine. And I want to be clear that just because you trust in wisdom and justice and the Word of God doesn't mean that everything is going to go... All your problems are going to go away. Look at Job. He trusted. He's still sick. He still has nothing. His children, they're still dead. Those problems aren't gone. But he now has a correct understanding of God's wisdom, a correct understanding of God's justice, and a correct understanding of his place. And so as we look through these final verses here, we see that uh, God rebukes Job's friends because they are wrongly accused God of how and how his justice works. But we see God say in chapter 42, verse 7, the second part, he says, For you have not spoken of me what was right, as my servant Job has. Job spoke rightly about God. Job correctly rejected the error of his friends and their simple understanding of what God's justice was. Job honored God through his struggles and wrestling. He was honest with God about how he felt in this uncertainty. And we need to be like Job during our times of struggle. We need to come honestly to God with our emotion, with our pain, and talk with Him about it. We need to come in prayer. There is nothing wrong and sinful with coming to God and expressing how we feel, the pain that we feel from, from hard times. Actually, that's the best way to process things. That's, how, that's what the book is teaching us. That's what we need to do. And when we do this, we need to trust in God's wisdom and justice and realize that He understands everything. And we come to Him trusting His wisdom, trusting His justice, pouring ourselves out to Him. That's how we get through these hard times. That's, that's what Job did. That's, that's what worked. And God said He did it without sin. That's what we need to do as well. We need to struggle in prayer because we know we pray to one who is infinitely wise and in control of all things. As the book concludes, we see that in verses 10 to 17 of chapter 42, God restores all of Job's possessions. And we're told that he actually had twice as as much as he had at the beginning. But if we've learned anything from the book, it should be this. God didn't restore Job's possessions because of good behavior. No, it was a gift of God wrapped up in his infinite wisdom. From his above oversight, as he looked down, he knew that this was the best thing to do because he's wise and he's just. And that's why he restored these things to Job, not because Job earned it or deserved it. As we conclude, just have one final note to say. It's really interesting. At the beginning, we saw how Satan was challenging God and he was wrong, which is awesome. To conclude today then, to conclude the entire book of Job, it's not going to answer why do bad things happen to good people. That's not what this book is for. It also doesn't explain how God practices justice in the universe. What it does instead is tell us to trust God's wisdom when we encounter suffering, rather than try and figure out the reasons for it. If you try and figure out the reasons for your suffering, it's going to end in two ways. First, you're going to simplify what God's justice looks like, just like Job's friends did. 
Or secondly, you're going to accuse God of having a limited knowledge. So we need to honestly bring our pain and grief to God, trusting that He cares and He's wise enough to know exactly what's going on and He's going to, he's going to provide for us. He's going to, be, he's going to comfort us. And that's what we do. So let's pray this morning as we conclude. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of Job. And Lord, as we see your justice, that you are a just God, you are a wise God, and you know so much more than we know. For we're here this morning, Lord, and we are questioning why things are happening to us. We don't understand it. Lord, I pray that you would comfort us. I pray that we would not question your justice. We would not question your wisdom. But Lord, we would come to you with our pain acknowledging that you are just and you are wise beyond our understanding and that you are in control of all things. Lord, I pray that if we're not yet to these tough times, if we're, things are going well now, we would still praise your name and we would lift you up and that when things don't go well, we would remember what happened in Job and we would correctly realize our position under you and we would correctly turn to you. I pray these things in your name. Amen.